I got tickets to go. And so I got to go to, and, you know, it's like, do I, you know, and this is like the Thursday, Friday rounds where I'm like, oh, wait, I get to go hang out at some golf course for the day and, you know, watch that as opposed to working. Yeah, I'll be, I'll get involved in this. So I got more involved and I went and, and it was just an instant love, like, like my, like the, like the land, especially like a TPC course, right. Especially like a pro golf level course, right. Like the, the landscape, the, the smell, the, and, and here in Arizona, which is the re, one of the reasons I live here is because how beautiful it is. And, and, and so you're out in the desert and the hills and the greens. And like, it, I just fell in love with the environment uh, uh, of golf and was, you, you know, hadn't I, even hit a club yet. I had not touched the club, no, and 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 still fell in love, fell in love with the idea of it. Jamie Cassip is a former Google Education Evangelist. He did that for a number of years, and now is a. Um, speaking and uh, working independently. He's a published author. Uh, Jamie's uh, spoken at a lot of very, very prominent conferences, and he and I, uh, our paths have crossed on a number of occasions because of that. Um, and um, following Jamie on social media, I noticed recently that he had taken up golf, and I found that super fascinating. Um, and Jamie talks a lot about, in our interview, about how growing up in Hell's Kitchen and being a person of color isn't exactly the easiest route to the game, but he found it and he's finding uh, a lot of joy and a lot of um, learning that's coming from uh, the game and uh, trying to introduce his daughter to the game as well. So uh, Jamie and I have a really, I think, a fascinating conversation. It's a little bit longer than some of my other uh, conversations, but I think well worth it. So enjoy my conversation with Jamie Cassett. But before even Google, I was... uh... A professor at Arizona State University. So I, I've been teaching classes uh, and, and, and I haven't really talked about it, even though I have taught a uh, communication class in high school. I was, I've always loved teaching, always found a passion around it, always loved being in the classroom. And so wait, years before Google, um, I would teach at Arizona State University in as part of either the graduate program or the undergraduate program, the public policy stuff. And so I would teach um, um, the ideas around like, in, like what innovations can we bring? What, you know, what business innovations can we bring into government? What we can bring into nonprofit? So I would do like an organizational development kind of class. And so I taught undergrads, classes in public policy and, and graduate level classes in uh, public policy, even before I got to Google. As a matter of fact, if anything, I still did it for a while at Google and then the travel became too much and I stopped doing it. And so I, I consider myself um, a, a, someone who studies education, right? And someone who has been in, in the classroom in, uh, definitely in the higher education space and, uh, and some in, in K-12, right? So I designed and put together a communication class that I taught to 10th graders at the, at the Phoenix Coding Academy, a school I helped start here in Phoenix. Um, and so I went in there and taught 10th graders, which, you know, can teach you a lot about teaching, right? When you're with 10th graders. And so I, I do that, but my goal has always been to, you know, focus on what we can bring 
with, because of my experience, what we can do with technology in education, right? So that's been my focus. With the idea that what we need more than anything in education has nothing to do with technology, but what we need to do is kind of change our mindset. And so I was at Google for 15 years, helped launch Google Apps for Education into the university space, helped launch Google Apps into K-12, into K and then launching Chromebooks into education. So I did that work. I left in June of 2020, mostly because... You know, Google had gotten to, too big for me, right? Like, you know, Larry and Sergey had left Google. And I was always like, if Larry and Sergey don't want to be at Google, why do I want to be there? And it just got to the point where there wasn't anything left to do there. There wasn't like the kind of impact I wanted to have had more to do with the cultural aspects of education, right? So how do we, how do we improve uh, diversity? How do we improve inclusion? How do we improve equity issues? And this is obviously all before you know, the summer of 2020 in the United States with the George Floyd and when we actually opened up our eyes to equity and access and diversity issues. So I left Google to go focus on some of that. Uh, since then, I've worked with a number of different organizations. I've worked with a number of higher education institutions. I, I, I for some reason, I got into, you know, this debate about whether you should go to college or not go to college frightens me sometimes because I think it's the wrong debate. And, and I think we we often um, you know talk about college as as this abstract thing when the reality is that it has nothing to do with the building but more to do with the concept, right? So what I mean is, I don't think I think you can have an argument as to whether or not you need higher education uh, in a in a structural way like a, like a college, but you can't argue with the idea that you need higher learning, right? So. Uh, the idea that you can get through life with whatever we define as a uh, 12 years of education um, doesn't seem, I think most people would agree that that's not true, right? That you need, for some things that you want to do in life, you're going to need more education, or at the very least, this concept of lifelong learning where you're constantly having to educate and constantly learn no matter what you do. And so I work, I've been working with a number of colleges and institutions on this idea of the value proposition of higher, higher learning. And most universities are spending their time defending the old world as opposed to proposing a new one, right? And so, for example, I work, I'm working with one university who has moved from you know, like, oh, everyone should go to college, you need a college degree to figuring out what their value proposition is and how can they talk about it and how can they bring it to students. And so higher education institutions, higher learning institutions are about being able to help students curate information and make sense of it. Higher learning institutions are about creating environments where students can practice the most critical skills that they need, right? The human skills, right? So the, the, I, if I was a higher education institution, the promise I'd make students is come here. We're gonna, you're gonna learn how to problem solve, critically think, collaborate. You're gonna learn how to be creative and you're gonna do it in safe environments where you're gonna be able to get really good at these things, right? That's a value proposition that we don't, we don't present to students. Or, you know, um, being able to say, uh, to, to, to students, you know, what's that problem that you want to solve? How do you want to solve it? Come here, we're going to help you develop the knowledge, skills, and abilities you need to solve those problems. And so 
been working with higher education institutions because I believe from an equity perspective that we, until I see, at least in the US, until I see a more balanced number between those who have a college degree and those who don't, I'm gonna continue to tell students of color that they need a college degree, right? You can't tell kids, can't tell poor kids that they shouldn't go to college when if you have a high school degree, you make $30,000 a year. But if you have a college degree, you make $50,000 a year. I, until those numbers even out, I, you can't tell me you can't go to college, right? So trying to figure out that space and, and help some institutions with that. I've also, you know, it's funny, I've been, the advice I give people is when you leave a company or when you leave a place um, uh, after 15 years, um, and, you know, you think about what you want to do next, don't wait a while, uh, people will tell you what to do next. And what I mean by that is uh, I left Google and the kinds of requests for my time were all around like, hey, we have this idea, or we have this product, or we have this service, we have this thing, we just don't know how to talk about it, or we don't know how to sell it, we don't know how to tell stories around it. Can you help us do that? So I've been helping some organizations do some of that. And then the last thing I've been working on is working with a number of organizations, um, some of them education institutions, some of them not. Um, I got to watch, and again, I didn't realize this until I left. I, I got to, before my time at, 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 uh, at Google, I spent uh, seven years as uh, organizational development consultant at Accenture, right? So I have this lens of how organizations work and how culture works inside organizations. And so I got to watch you know, arguably one of the most innovative companies in, in the history of business um, from the inside for 15 years. I got to watch it with the lens of uh, someone who has experience in organizational development and design and principles of culture. And I got to watch what worked, what didn't work and where Google screwed up a lot, right? And, and then take all that experience, take that 15 years of experience and help organizations that are five people deep or 10 people deep or 20 people deep who wanna learn lessons from the experience of somebody like Google uh, and not make the same mistakes that Google made. And so I've been working with a number of organizations to do some of that work. Um, and then I've been playing golf, right? So uh, I like, you know, how we got connected uh, is this idea that, yeah, I live a block away from a golf course and stopped playing golf 20 years ago and and I remembered loving it and because all of a sudden I had free time and the pandemic and although I just started like six months ago it was the travel thing right like I think that you know you and I talked about travel and travel is not something that fits a golf lifestyle well right because golf is something that requires commitment right you have to be able to get out there and get workouts and in practice and it's one thing to, and, and unlike any other sport, because, you know, if you are a triathlete, no matter where you travel, you can run, right? You can, you can find a pool, you can swim. Um, with golf, it's a little, it's a little harder to be able to do that, to bring all your equipment. Like, you know, we talked about for day trips or whatever, you can go work out, you can go do those things, but, but you need a consistent schedule of working out in golf to stay consistent. And so all of a sudden I wasn't traveling as much and I started golfing and fell in love with it and realized that um, there's so much there that attracts me, not only just the opportunity to be outside and be in this mental space, but so much 
of golf, 99% of it is inside your head. Uh, and, and so there's something very attractive about um, being good at something by being able to control your head. Right. And, and I, and I like that concept as opposed to, you know, other sports where physicality becomes such a big component of it. Golf isn't necessarily that. Um, I mean, I'm never going to drive the ball 390 yards, but uh, you know, everyone's the same inside a hundred yards, right? Like everyone can, can, can be the same inside a hundred yards. And, and unlike basketball, for example, I'm never going to dunk a ball again but I can easily chip balls in for birdies and eagles and things like that. So it becomes um, a, a mental challenge that I really fell in love with. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, golf is this, you know, it's an unusual sport in many ways related to others because number one, you can do it by yourself. So unlike, you know, maybe basketball. You do do it by yourself. Yeah. But, but at the same time, and it's the social component, you know, and I've seen you with your daughter trying to get her engaged in it. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, I've got my group of buddies that I, that I that I have to play with. And, and when I think about I've often I, I've often thought about golf and I've written about it on my blog a few times is, is, is I love its its uh, relationship to the assessment conversation in that score is one. It's just one way of measuring uh, success and enjoyment. And I've really tried to downplay that. Uh, even though I've, you know, I've played a lot of golf and I've had some success, but that's just one, like if, 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 if I come home from, a, from a day at the golf course and, you know, my wife asks me, Hey, how, how did it, did you have a good day? And yeah, because I, I didn't play particularly well today, but why was it a beautiful day outside? It was just good to be outside. Or man, we had a lot of good conversations with buddies or, uh, I hit right. two really good shots. Right, uh, right. I didn't have a great game, but I hit two really good ones. That, right. that were really memorable. So uh, I just love the idea that it's it's like the assessment conversation, and that like you, you just can't take one thing. There's so many things that attract you to it. The one thing I was going to ask you though is, you know, you talked, you kind of mentioned about getting back into it, mm -hmm. and and I know it's difficult for people of our age to start to to be from zero, and there aren't many. Because it, it is a hard game. So I'm, I want you to go back a little bit to sort of maybe your first experiences with golf and just talk a yeah. little bit about like how that happened and, and, sure. and how far did you go before you sort of said, you know, life, whatever, interrupted and said, okay, I'm going to put that on the shelf for a while. Yeah, no, that's a great question because, you know, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen, New York in the 70s and 80s. I There are no golf courses that I know of anywhere. I think there's a driving range somewhere, but there's no golf courses anywhere near me. And so golf was never a thing that was part of my life. I never grew up with it. And it was always, you know, like every stereotype about, you know, golfing clothing and who golfs and the type of people in country clubs. And it's just so far removed. My, my personality, my background, my culture, everything's so far removed from the concept of golf that I never got interested in it at all. What happened was I was working at Accenture. 1995 and my the partner i was working with huge golf guy golf like you know every weekend like would lose his mind if he had to work on a weekend because he you know it would interfere with his golf um he was involved with a project that at the time was called anderson consulting before it was called accenture the anderson consulting got involved in which is the world championship of golf and because we live here in Phoenix and I was in the Phoenix office. The Phoenix office was one, was the host of this first event that they were going to have this, 
They spent all millions of dollars to start advertising and get more involved in golf. And this was it. The World Championship of Golf started in 1995. And they spent a lot of money to invite really good players. And I remember like Greg Norman and, uh, you know, others, um, whoever was big in 1995 to this tournament that was taking place at TPC in Scottsdale um, here. And because my boss was so such a big part of it and so involved, I got involved and I got tickets to go. And so I got to go to, you know, it's like, do I, you know, this is like the Thursday, Friday rounds where I'm like, Oh wait, I get to go hang out at some golf course for the day and, you know, watch that as opposed to working. Yeah. I'll be, I'll get involved in this. So I got more involved and I went and, and it was just an instant love, like, like my, like the, like the land, especially like a TPC course, right. Especially like a pro golf level course, right. Like the, the landscape, the, the smell, the, and, and here in Arizona, which is the re- one of the reasons I live here is because how beautiful it is. And, and, and so you're out in the desert and the hills and the greens. And like, it, I just fell in love with the environment uh, uh, of golf and was, you, you know, hadn't I, even hit a club yet. I had not touched a club. No. And, and, and still fell in love, fell in love with the idea of it. Uh, and then a couple months later went out and I, I don't know if I bought a set, got a used set. I don't remember how I even ended up with a, a set in my hands. I started playing, but this is before the YouTube days, right? So there's no YouTube. There's no, you literally would your buddies, your friends, the people who play golf are the ones who taught you how to play. Right. And that's always not, that's never a good idea. And or you'd go and watch people at the driving range and you would do what they do. Or you would, you know, eventually end up, you, you go to Blockbuster and get like the Greg Norman, you know, either you get the, the Greg Norman's uh, nine minute abs or the, you know, how to hit a driver videos, right? And so you'd get those videos and go home and watch them. That's how I learned how to play. And then started playing more regularly and got pretty good at it. Like I, at one point, I think, and, you know, I got... Again, with no lessons, no study, no nothing. Uh, I, you know, I was in the 85 to 90 range most. And I think a lot of it has to do with when you go to the same golf course, uh, you know, over and over again, your local course, you get good at that course because yeah. you know where everything is. And, and so you get comfortable with that. Uh, so on those courses, I got pretty good. Um, and then, you know, life changed. Um, I ended up getting a job. I left uh anderson consult or accenture at the time went to to charles schwab for a couple years and that's really when my travel started picking up again and then you know i was i found myself single you know a, a single dad with two kids traveling work and golf just kind of faded away it just i stopped playing because again of the commitment that it takes and and so the challenge of trying to constantly play um, became an issue. And I think I talked about this in the post that connected us on, on, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, there was like this societal expectation that I'm not supposed to play golf. And it wasn't a bad thing. It's, this isn't a, like an equity or diversity thing. It was a, you play golf. Like, and I was still playing basketball and I was still good. I, you know, I, I was a great, I was a good basketball player. I was captain of my high school basketball team. I love playing. I, I, you know, I play with the, the guys at, uh, at ASU, you know, the starting players at ASU. So I was good. I was a good basketball player and, you know, into my thirties, I was a good basketball player. And, and so that's what I was supposed to play. Cause that's how I grew up. So I, I went and did that. 
and and so that's kind of where it got to the point where I literally lived. I've lived for six years next to a golf course and and haven't been haven't played until like five months ago when I played for the first time on this golf course. Um, that's how disconnected I became from golf and then picked it back up when I realized some, you know, it's one of those calls like, Hey, we're doing a tournament. We'd love for you. You know, do you want to come out and participate? We need a four. You know, sure. I'll do it. And then you go out to the driving range like two days before to remember everything. And you know, and then I signed up and I started playing again. I'm like, you know, I like this. And I said to myself, I want to be good at this because I stopped playing basketball. I broke my ankle in two places and I stopped playing years ago. And so there wasn't anything competitive, no sport that I could play. And so I picked golf back up or oh, should I don't have it with me. Um, I, my, I have a friend, his name is David Lebowitz. Um, and I even made custom uh, pro V one balls. I made a, 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 a 12 pack. I don't know what they're called. A box of golf balls. I customized them with the phrase, you know, 2022 gold kick Lebo's ass, right? Like that's my friend. I'm, that's my goal is to, is to beat him because I missed the competitive angle of sports. And so that's, that became a thing. And I took my first lesson uh, with being a left-handed golfer. Uh, either I was, I was looking for a left-handed golf instructor or someone who could, you know, is left-handed, but played right-handed. And I found that guy. I've been taking lessons. I took one lesson with him. We haven't been able to set up the next one, but that was recent. And just to show you how much, how little I knew about the concept of golf and everything that's involved, um, you know, he showed me like a, a divot, right? He's like, a, in, in he, he showed me a divot. And he goes, where was the ball in this, div, in this divot? And literally 54 years old, I said, as if it was a fact that the sun you know, uh, that the earth spins around the sun. Oh, the, the ball is right in the middle of that divot. You know, I literally was, you know, 54 years old when I realized that, no, that's not where the divot is, that the divot is, is after the ball. So that's how bad, uh, my golfing knowledge was. And I've gotten better since to the point where last week I played around, still got a 97, right? And the only way I keep score, I don't keep score. My watch keeps score. The technology is amazing in golf now, right? So like I have a, I have my watch and I have a viewfinder or viewfinder. I have a, you know, range finder. And, and so my watch keeps score because I have sensors on my clubs. Uh, I got a 97, but in that round, I got three birdies and three pars, right? Which was huge. Um, to the point where the guy I was playing, a friend that I was playing with was like, I didn't want to, it was, a, it was like, there was like five or six holes where it was like, it was a par, bogey, birdie, par, birdie, par, birdie, right? And he's like, I didn't want to, it was like, I was like watching, he's like, I was, I thought I was like watching one, uh, uh, like a pitcher throw a perfect game. I didn't want to say anything because it was amazing to watch. And it was like, I had this little like five or six hole streak where like I could play golf like really well. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want. And so I'm trying to get to that on a consistent basis. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting when we think about, um, you know, entry points and, and what is, you know, although, you know, you and I uh, would have uh, a lot of differences, you know, obviously growing up in inner city, 
New York as a person of color, mm -hmm. me as a white guy in Canada and rural Canada, like very, very different backgrounds. However, the, what, what is what was the same in the in the 70s is that golf was still a nerdy sport, even for yeah. me. And it wasn't until Tiger Woods came along, really, that people said, hey, this is kind of cool. Like, any, you know, you don't have to be of that. Right. So, so that, that was a really important factor. What, That's what a good the difference? Point, yeah. The difference for me, though, was that two of my buddies who were more of the, you know, they were, you know, and we were all, we all played other sports too. We were hockey players and baseball players and so forth, but they were the cool guys that were playing golf. So it allowed me to sort of have these guys sort of paved the way in that. I mean, right. you know, it, it, in, in a small sense, but right. thinking about, thinking about that in terms of accessibility, like, like how, you know, and I think, you know, you're thinking again, I'm watching you kind of, Try to introduce your daughter to the game and i mean i had a mm -hmm. father who introduced me to the game and so there's just so many elements about it that 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 i think are fascinating around like how do we create these spaces for uh for accessibility so i wonder if you just have any thoughts around kind of that yeah. for your own experience and moving forward yeah no and and i think this is a huge topic because um there there so you can start with this idea of like, you know, you and I can probably sit down and put together a PowerPoint or a Google slide uh, presentation around the, the benefit, the potential benefits of golf for students. Like, I bet you we can do that pretty quickly. Like, you know, like everything from what we talked about earlier, the, the concentration element to it, the, the control, right? The fact that you personally are in control of everything. That's actually from an equity perspective, you know, just in sports in general, I was thinking about this, which is that unlike other sports where you can get favor, right? Uh, that doesn't happen in golf, right? Like, so, so like Michael Jordan, the difference between Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, for example, is Michael Jordan would get those foul calls, right? Like he, when he became famous, like you could like breathe, it was the, it was the ghost of Michael Jordan fouls, right? Like, you know, NBA players would talk about like, um, Michael Jordan would get a foul depending on how cool the shot was, right? And like, you know, obviously everyone gets contacted when you play basketball, Michael Jordan would get all the calls, for example. In golf, Tiger Woods doesn't get to like go up, you know, hit the ball and get close to the hall on an approach shot. And then somebody goes up there and taps it in for them. And like, oh, it was close enough. You'll, you'll get that score. You don't get, you don't get favor in, in golf. Everyone gets treated the same, right? So there's that. Um, the other thing that's interesting about golf is, is you know, I've, I've actually more than showing and this is an important thing for those that are teaching your kids how to play golf or or getting them into the game is don't just show them the highlights actually make them watch rounds because when you watch highlights of golf what you see is everyone hit these amazing shots and you see these like 20 foot bird you know you know these 20 foot chip birdies or you see you know 20 foot putts when you actually watch golf, you see terrible shots by professionals, right? These are professional people who get paid millions of dollars and they hit the ball into the trees and can't find it, right? Like you got to make your kids watch that because what, what you'll notice is unlike other sports, again, you know, using basketball as the analogy because that's the one that I know the best. It's like watching, imagine uh, Steph Curry, right? Watching them shoot threes. And then for the next three shots, he doesn't miss, 
he literally hits the side of the backboard, right? Or, or like throws it up and it like hits the scorer's table, right? Like, like not that he misses, but he completely misses. And that, that happens in golf all the time, right? You watch a Tiger Woods, you know, hit the picking table, you know, 90 yards in the opposite direction of where the green is. And, and so this idea that even the professionals who practice and get, play, get paid to do this have bad shots, but then have the next shot, right? And it, this idea of the short memory and, and, and forgetting the, that shot and then focusing on the next. There's so many mental aspects to the game that students, I think, can gain from. Um, and then for students of color and students growing up in poverty, like the being, you know, especially, you know, rural, uh, urban kids is being outside, being in nature, being in, in beautiful weather, being in, 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 in these environments that are, that are great. And then to your point about it's an individual sport, but you get to socialize and that you have to count on yourself and you're accountable. Like there's so many aspects of education that you can bring to golf. And so when you look at it that way, then. Then at the next slide that we would put together in this deck is how is it not equitable? And it's not right. Like the, I play golf at Encanto golf course down the street, right? Public course, city course. I pay, if I want to ride a car, it costs me $55 to pay, to play, to play golf. That's expensive for me. Like, how's that not expensive for a poor kid, right? Like, that's just insanity. And so how do we balance that? What do we do? What are the programs? There's no, there's no programs in Kanto that if, you know, you make less than $30,000 a year, your golf is free, right? We don't have programs like that because we don't think of golf as a, as a sport that, uh, that students need, right? It's a nice to have. Uh, and so what do equitable programs need to look like in golf? I watched and I tweeted about this. And that's one of the great things about not being at Google or anywhere, right? Is that I can tweet whatever the hell I want and I can call people out whenever the hell I want. That's been, I used to do that anyway, but knowing that I'm not going to get fired for it is even better. But I called out the CEO of Cisco, um, who stood on the course, stood on Pebble Beach and talked about how equitable golf is. Right. Like, you know, like uh, golf is a very equitable sport and we're going to continue to make it equitable. I mean, he's standing on a course that costs $655 to play on. Right. I would not like it has to be like my 80th birthday present to pay $655 to pay to play on a course. And that's without the travel and the hotel and everything else that's involved with going to Pebble Beach. So how do we make golf more equitable considering the benefits? And I think you know, the question that most people would have is, well, why do we need to make it equitable? And I think that's where I want to spend some time focusing on at some point, which is how do we, uh, how do we start listing out the benefits of golf? Like how, do, what, what are the benefits of golf that we can bring young people of color or poor kids, white or black or brown, uh, the, the benefits of a sport like golf and what you can get out of it. And not to mention, you know, that's just, course cost right that doesn't the, the clubs the equipment the ball there's it's just a very expensive sport to play like skiing kind of and what happens when sports are expensive they tend to be um you know very white and and to your point about tiger woods great tiger woods you know might have broken the color barrier to golf but then didn't, didn't break down the cost of it so we still need to do that work 
Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, when I think back to, to you know, my school experience and, you know, <laughs> you think about... You think about the the phys ed classes of the of the 70s were, were again geared to athletes and so forth and then there began to get a shift that says well it's not just about you know playing sports it's about right. developing physical skills and one of the things that i always thought about is like um like yeah great play basketball i play football but those sports when you're you hit a certain age that's it it's over you can't play them anymore right and, you know one that's of the great point. benefits of golf my dad is 90 years old and Still in plays. fact, on his 90th birthday, he bought new clubs, to which I said, if I'm 90 and I'm buying new clubs, I've done something right, right? Like That's like, a very optimistic person. I like that. Exactly. Like, I don't even buy I don't even buy green bananas, you know, <laughs> right, 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 right. at this point, right? So and I mean it's it so so I mean, as one benefit of like this is something that you can carry with you to the lifetime. And I think what you described earlier which is really fascinating about like why you're so interested in the sport is because man it challenges me like it like i there and again not everybody's gonna not everybody has that same mentality because sure. there's different reasons why why you play a sport mm -hmm. but i you know i think you know the the you know the jack nicholas talks about there's three things that make golf difficult it's expensive it takes a lot of time and it's really hard <laughs> like right, those right. are the three things right like the, yeah. so how do you how do you sort of minimize those barriers and you know mm -hmm. i think too getting getting out of the mindset of you don't have to play 18 holes you can play a couple of holes and i mean land is expensive but it, but it's also the idea that that the golfing world realizes that the sustainability of their game in the future is going to require more people to play and they're just aren't you can't just rely on you know rich fat cats uh, that are that are playing it like and and you know there's something you know when i watch when you watch young kids out there with with their parents or their grandparents it's a really a beautiful thing right like and i mean yeah there's just something like we're out we're outside together we're just enjoying one another's company right and right. you know well that we can, yeah that's that's a huge benefit and i don't know if you're if your kids play but um that was the, the i'm teaching my daughter who obviously i'm not going to force her to do anything but i'm teaching her um because she's interested in it by the way i should also mention this because this is part of it as well which is i was diagnosed this year with uh, severe adhd and anyone who knows me for more than five minutes is like, duh, right? Um, like no one's been like shocked by that news. Yet I knew nothing about ADHD um, and, and, and what it really is and, and what it really does to you. Um, everything for, here's a, an, an education example is that, and I've never talked about this publicly because I was always embarrassed, but I would fall, I would fall asleep uh, in, in classes all the time. Like I remember like third grade, second grade, falling asleep in class. And I just always thought that I was sleep deprived. I always thought that it was, uh, you know, lack of sleep or not sleeping enough, whatever. And, and I would fall asleep in meetings. Like I would fall asleep on conference calls or, you know, or, or whatever. And I just thought, and then I realized through all the research that I did once I was diagnosed and by, what I mean by severe is there's like five or six different like official medical assessments. And there's, there's one in particular that I remember, which is here are 21 things, right? Um, if your patient shows consistent signs of eight or more of these, you know, the, this is the classification. I, I, in mine for that particular assessment, I, I had 21 out of 21 things right? Like 21 of those things were mine. So that's the, the, the severeness of it. But 
um, I realized through the research is that no, it's it, you sitting still in a classroom listening to someone talk, your brain shuts down, and so you start shutting down. So that's actually what's happening. I didn't know that, and then I started. You know, I've been taking medication for it, and I was in in a church for my wife's grandfather's funeral. And it was the first time I had since the diagnosed the diagnosis where I was sitting still listening to someone, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm paying attention, like. That's what they talk like, 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 you know, the joke after getting the diagnosis and, and then taking medication is like, oh, my God, people are a lot dumber than I thought they were, um, because now I'm paying attention in these meetings and in these conference calls and in church. Right. Like I'm like listening and, and it's not making any sense to me. So I think and my daughter uh, is also also has ADHD. And I can see, as a matter of fact, this morning, she was worried about a an assignment that was due today. She's in first grade. She's in a Montessori school. Uh, an assignment that's due today in class assignment. She's worried that she hasn't finished it and it's due today. This is all in class. And I'm like, why didn't you finish it? And she said, uh, because I had other, because I was working on other things, right? I'm like, that's such an ADHD answer, right? Uh, and so I got diagnosed with that. My daughter has it. And golf is an amazing sport to, to help you tackle some of those issues. The, the focus, the, the, the hyper-focusness of golf, the idea of like being able to create stats and follow patterns, especially now with all the technology you have. So we both have it. We, and we both have been using golf as a way to connect around this topic. And selfishly, I want to be able to travel with her and take golf clubs and travel around the world and go golfing, right? Like, that's a great thing to your point, like to be able to play for the next 30 years with her and go out and golf with her. My oldest daughter now wants to learn how to play because she wants to do the same thing. And so it, if it is a great way to connect with young people, whether they're your kids or your grandkids or your, you know, nieces and nephews, because um, there's lots of time to talk while you're playing golf, right? There's a lot of time to, to talk. And so there's a great way to connect where you can focus on the game and still focus on the interconnectivity of people playing together. To your point, I usually play solo. So especially here in Arizona, where during most of the year, it's, it's a golf haven. And so almost all tee times are, are booked almost all the time. And so if I go out as an individual, there's like a 90% chance that I'm going to get teamed up with random people. And so you meet random people all the time. And sometimes you meet interesting characters. Sometimes you meet people that you end up becoming friends with, right? So it's a great sport to have those kinds of social experiences. Well, it's, it's so refreshing to hear somebody who's, I don't want to say new to the game, but relatively new, especially yeah, yeah. picking it up and kind of hearing your perspectives, and especially as somebody who is in their 50s and who's trying to sort of relearn the game again. Like, I think that's just such an encouraging thing for people um, because it is, I mean, as you've, <laughs> as you've articulated and anybody that's ever played the game knows, it's a super hard game. And, and, and so, um, which just continues to make me curious, how do we make it um, easier and better for people's uh, moving forward. Cause I think there's, there's so much potential. So thanks so much for the conversation. I just want to make sure I give you, I give you a last chance to sort of, uh, connect. Cause you did a nice job too, of connecting 
you know, not everybody connects their passion outside of education to their job themselves. And that's fine because a lot of time it's like I do this thing as an escape from this and I'm not necessarily trying to make connections to my work. But I think you and I are both of the of the same cut out of the same cloth where we just can't help right, can't. But see the connections between the things right. we do that aren't directly related to our work um, and, and how those things help us. So uh, just right. maybe a last word on uh, kind of where you see yourself going in the future with this and maybe how yeah. you might, how you might kind of continue to bridge uh, your experiences on the golf course with uh, other work that you do. Yeah, no. So, so a couple of quick things about that. Number one is um, in that post that I posted, I talked about my other passion and love, which is photography. And, and so here's a way to tie two things together for me, right? Where I can tie photography and golf together and, and tying it to the work that you do at the very minimum, at the very, very least, if it's not tied directly to your work, it's tied to your mental self self being. And what I mean by that is today is a day where I looked at my calendar, looked at my schedule, and I went and put in an hour to go to the driving range, right? To be able to walk, to walk down and drive down for an hour and go to the driving range. And it's my workout for the day. And, and it's important to be able to stop work and go do that. And, and for me, I can go to, I can go to a smelly gym somewhere, right. And in the basement and work out and lift weights. That's fine. I do that as well. But the idea of like being able to be outside for an hour in, 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 in the sun and just get a workout in and, and chip, like literally most people go to the driving range. They sit there with their driver and they pound away driver. I love going to the driving range with, I don't even, sometimes I go to the driving range. I don't get balls from the shop at all. I bring my own balls and I go and I chip and use the putting green for an hour. And that's what I work on. And so that workout, that mental being, uh, that mental space that you need to do that and nothing. And, and I, and for those who don't know golf or don't play golf, there is no sport, um, sport game, whatever you want to call it, that requires the mental capacity of golf. In other words, when you are golfing, if you are thinking about anything else, you are going to play terribly. You have to think about golf. You have to think about and so the idea of being able to be out there for an hour and not think about anything else that's going on in your life except those putts, right? That's a value to your work, period, right? And then the sec- the last thing about this is that, and I'm sure you do this too, is I'm a learner. I love to learn. And and I love learning. Photo- I love le- So the three big things, you know, photography, I'm always learning. I'm dog training. My, I, my dog, Luna, and I are oh, constant training and we're, I'm, I'm always teaching her tricks. She's playing with Frisbees where I'm teaching her how to be off leash. And then, and now golf, like the idea that I have these things that I can constantly learn from is, is, is cool. And one of the things that I'm learning, and I don't know how deep you get into this stuff is that the new way of thinking about golf does not require what we used to think of in the past, right? Where a lot of people played with their hands and their arms, right? And what we're discovering and what is the, is the new effortless swinging, being able to like literally swing with your body, right? Like how you swing with your core. And if you can learn how to do that, you can play golf for years because all you're doing is you're using your body. Your, your strength isn't coming 
from your bat, right? You're not, you're not, you know, you're not your 25 year old batter standing in a batter box, you know, trying to hit a home run with the strength in your arms and your hands in golf. That used to be the case. That's how lots of people play. But the reality is that if you use your core, if you're using your body, then it becomes very effortless. And so you can play golf uh, once you get out of the soreness of, you know, you know, developing the skills, um, you can play golf pretty effortlessly um, uh, way into your 70s, 80s and 90s. And so that's what I'm excited about. Well, that's awesome. And, and uh, again, you, you, you got me excited again, uh, continuing to, cause I said, I haven't been able to play golf for a while. Yeah, no, let's co- come out. When are you coming out to, to, to Phoenix? We're, I don't know. I gotta, a, I gotta make golf a plan. Capital of the world. Is here. I know I've played a lot of courses in the area and actually gone down to Tucson a few times and sort of played out there a bit too, but yeah, it's, I mean, and, and again, that's just another a- aspect of it. You talked about the photography, all the places that you see in the different courses. I'm, sure. I'm a big uh, a golf architect nerd. So I kind of study like how bunkers are placed and, and so forth. And, and, and again, I know lots of people that are listening to this, they don't care about golf and I didn't want them necessarily to listen to this conversation to be completely, although if they, if they, it convinces them to maybe pick up a club and try it, that would be fantastic. But more, I just sure. wanted them to hear, uh, you know, your story around, uh, uh, you know, how you sort of, and I love the sort of, I, I used to, but dropped it, but now I'm back. I think that's a great, there's so many great lessons there. So yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. We, we well, gotta, yeah. we gotta figure out how to make this work sometimes. So. Sure. Sure. And I, you know, look, I love playing here in the summer and, you know, talk about, you know, equity access and, and, and price here uh, in the summer one, there's nobody on the course. So I, I, in the summer, I can go out there and play five rounds by myself with five different golf. I will literally bring five different golf balls and play five rounds by myself because there's nobody out there. And number two is you play these courses that are like $500 for like 30 bucks uh, because there's no one playing. Yeah. So there, there's lots of opportunity to play golf here, especially in the summer. Cause it's so hot and I actually like yeah. playing yeah. in the heat. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've, I've become adjusted to it, but I, I play in all kinds. I got, I, I've got used to playing in the cold here. So I'll sure. Yeah. No, and that one day I want to be, come out and play out there. Cause I, I love, I love the idea of playing in uh, non-desert courses as well. Cause I haven't well, had that experience at all. Well, all right, Jamie, thank right, you man. for your time, my friend. This is great. Good, Good luck. To you. All right. You bet. See ya. All right. Bye. bye.